the planet is is more emotionally and hum- and historically important to us uh, uh, than we know. And the destruction of the planet um, matters more to us than we know. That is our tragedy at the moment. Um, we have uh, we, we have the knowledge, potentially in principle, we have the means to do something about it. But those means fundamentally are tragic because they will require violent contestation. Uh, it's difficult to see these things being handled in the spirit of parliamentary democracy. And that violent contestation could unleash all forms of um, absolutist and totalitarian thinking that one doesn't even want to contemplate. So this is the tragedy that we face at the moment. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, welcome to Salvage Life, brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage, a journal of revolutionary arts and letters appearing twice a year. For finalising issues, subscribers should soon have their array of political commentary, art and fiction. We are your co-hosts on Salvage Live. I'm Annie Olaloku-Tariba, and in a moment, I'll hand you over to Barnaby Rain to introduce the event. This event is special. We're delighted to have Verso Books as co-hosts for the launch of the first book by the Savage Collective, The Tragedy of the Worker. It's a book about climate change and a possible communism for the 21st century. Barnaby, get us started. Thank you so much, Annie. Max Levine was a leader of the ill-fated German Revolution of 1919, whose failure began the unraveling of Europe's revolutionary moment. We communists, he said, are corpses on leave. I found that line quoted years later, not by Levine, but by Lukács, who thought it represented a last gasp of a romantic revolutionary tradition superseded by the science of Marxism. What if instead, this desperate grasping for some life amid death was always the left tradition, more than or alongside an optimistic modernism, giving to revolutionaries their urgency From 1900 to the present, we can narrate a clear set of demons. First, imperialism and World War I, then fascism and its afterlife in colonial violence, the threat of nuclear war, and then climate change. Against all these terrors, revolution figured as Walter Benjamin's emergency break. This book reclaims that lineage, but with a difference, as forest fires and droughts both spread. What if the disaster has already begun? What if old formulations of socialism or barbarism are too optimistic now? The time for techno-utopian futures, for egalitarian abundance, may be past if the conditions for comfortable life on Earth are shrinking and finite. What if we're too late? Crucially, how to approach that condition and train our communism on it, rather than sinking into despair? Left thought travels too rarely from south to north. Narrating the post-colonial condition, 
The Jamaican anthropologist David Scott talks of tragedy, just as this book does. Nations winning independence and then finding themselves locked in this world system are, Scott says, conscripts of modernity, not its authors, but compelled to reproduce its violence and suffer the consequences. That may be how climate devastation affects us too. This tragedy was not inevitable. That's part of its awfulness. Scott's post-colonial tragedy tracks the defeat of an anti-colonial moment, the era of Bandung. We face fossil capital as a murderous and destructive order that shouldn't have been allowed to fester. Another world was possible, but what to do in the wreckage of its defeat? That is the central question that motivates the salvage collective here applied to climate catastrophe. This is not a book of climate science. It aims um, to probe the implications for politics of some possible scientific conclusions, not to prove to you that it's too late, but to ask how we might still be radicals if it is. We'll be explaining what all that means over the rest of today's event. I'll hand back to you, Annie. I think you had our first question. Thanks so much, Barnaby. Uh, so I was going to start with a question for Rosie. And Rosie, I was one. I'll just step in, Rosie, the question until we get Annie back. The question was just if you could tell us, I think, Annie was trying to ask um, how the project came about and what its stakes were. Sure, yeah. Um... So I guess one of the motivating problems that set us about writing this has actually been put much better by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective, um, which is that climate change is a revolutionary problem without a revolutionary subject. And so there have been various attempts over recent years by various parts of the left to posit a new revolutionary subject because of climate change that says maybe because climate change is a universal problem, um, that transcends class, you know, maybe there'll be a kind of universal um, revolutionary subject, or maybe because the youth will inherit the future, and we've seen a lot of militancy around climate change, the youth will be, you know, a new revolutionary subject who will lead us out of this mess, uh, maybe the dispossessed global south, so on, various kind of attempts to um, theorize where that kind of militancy and leadership might come from um, to kind of lead us out of, of the mess. And we are like pretty traditional when it comes to the revolutionary subject and we're interested in thinking through in situating the classical Marxist revolutionary subject, which is the proletariat, within contemporary capitalism, within the context of climate change. So we were interested particularly in the fact that it's only from this vantage point in history, certainly not from Marx's vantage point, arguably not from Lenin's either. It's only from this vantage point that we can see that the history of proletarianization, the process of bringing people from living off the land and into the wage relation, first and foremost into industrialized cities, we can now see that that history has a twin history, which is the history of climate catastrophe. They're one and the same history. One has caused the other. Um, and so we wanted to flesh out the ways that that reveals capitalism to be constitutively ecological. It's a global environmental process that goes well beyond the emissions of fossil fuels, although COP26 would have you believe otherwise. There are a whole variety of environmental processes that capitalism is responsible for, species death, the acidification of the ocean, the melting of the ice caps, so on. Um, but further to that, not only is capitalism uh, 
a global environmental process, but therefore so must communism be. Our alternative to capitalism also has to be an ecological project. So the argument of the book or the place that we get to in the end of it is towards something that we're terming salvage communism, which is both a kind of argument and orientation of the book, which is that whatever communism might have been in a previous age had our you know, the people that came before us been victorious in a different age, whatever it could have been then, now communism will have to be a project of repair, first and foremost. It will have to inherit the ruins, inherit this poisoned earth and and take on the, the project of repairing the human relationship to nature, to the earth, um, to the environment. Um, so that's, that's broadly um, kind of what sets about writing it. Um, the stakes I think we'll kind of get into. There are a number of people that we argue with in the book, various um, various different parts of the left. Um, but I think those that's the kind of real heart of it is if capitalism has led us here to a place where there is no abundant communism that seems possible at this point, how do we continue to be communists in the ruins? Amazing. I mean, something you said there, Rosie, um, uh, was particularly striking, which was uh, we may not be here now if people in the past had won. Uh, this is where we are as a result of past defeats. And we have to work out how to work our way through uh, some hope of some kind of victory uh, after those defeats. I wanted to ask you, Richard, um, how the book surveys the last century of left thinking about this question, because it is both a book about the present and the past, um, from the future past of Soviet ecologies um, and their displacement by industrial Fordism, as we know in the Soviet Union, to the extractivism of the Latin American pink tide in recent years. Uh, how does the book approach those pasts? Well, the key word in the book's title is tragedy. And if you think about uh, Marxism. Raymond Williams famously said that Marxism is one of the three great uh, tra tragic ideologies of the 20th century. He mentioned also Freudianism and existentialism. What's so tragic about Marxism? Um, well, primarily that men make history uh, in the sexist language of the 19th century, but not in circumstances of their choosing. In other words, uh, as Rosie put it, we inherit the rubble, we inherit the wreckage, we inherit the ruins. And that's the materials out of which we've got to build um, something just. And although many communists might have hoped in the 19th century that uh, it would be built in a highly developed, highly educated, sophisticated society uh, with uh, the material uh, superabundance already latent, um, it turned out that um, the first uh, and probably only successful socialist revolution uh, took place in a country that was um, decimated by the hammer and clatter and slaughter of World War I. Um, and uh, what you can see happening there, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a familiar dialectic because um, on the one hand, Russia had traditions of ecologism, quite sophisticated traditions. Vernadsky was already doing some of his best writing before the revolution. Um, some of the others, like Stanchinsky, um, sort of thrived after the revolution. Um, but essentially, you have these traditions of ecologism, and in the context of the Russian Revolution, there is um, a double process. On the one hand, there is, of course, you know, Lenin's terribly interested in ecology, Trotsky not so much. 
Um, Trotsky is a bit like a coked-up accelerationist. If you read his famous passage in Literature and Revolution, he talks about, well, I'm not very happy with the mountains being where they are, so let's move the mountains around, let's move the rivers around. You know, humanity can totally reshape the planet, um, uh, and uh, it's that kind of hubris. But there were uh, tendencies, particularly under uh, Lunakovsky's... Um, Commissariat for Enlightenment, which were in favor of uh, listening to the con conservationists, setting up uh, big conservation parks. Um, and more importantly, someone like T Stanchinsky basically prefigured ecological economics, saying that we need to incorporate the flows of energy into our understanding of economics. Um, and, uh, you know, he was particularly interested in communities of organisms and how uh, food chains and energy flows work within them uh, and how they should be incorporated into uh, the um, sort of national strategy. The other side of this was a certain pronounced positivism with regard to the sciences, um, a certain Prometheanism. I mentioned Trotsky, but obviously he was far from the only one. Um, and obviously the urgent need to rescue 125 million people from absolute penury and devastation. Trotsky's fear was that Russia would end up in a semi-colonial situation uh, preyed on by the West. So the idea here is that, um, you know, when Lenin talks about uh, socialism is Soviet power plus electricity, what this really means, and you see this beginning in war communism, the idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, foregrounding coal um, uh, and, you know, coal-fired power stations and using that to jack up labor productivity. And, of course, Trotsky at the, this stage had his idea of militarizing um, uh, the, the labor force and so on. Um, and the, there's a particular aspect of this that makes it tragic because... Uh, you know, with George Steiner in his essay about Trotsky and the tra tragic imagination sort of suggests that uh, one of the things that's um, particularly uh, problematic about Trotsky is that he knows very well, um, he can see what's coming. You know, he predicts the Central Committee substituting for the party and thus substituting for society. Um, he can see the dangers of Stalinism, um, you know, some, some way ahead. But he uh, eventually takes this uh, Promethean stance with regard to, well, first of all, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't side with the, um, uh, not wrong, the leap into uh, industrial modernity in order to be able to support a population of that size. Um, and, you know, the amount of squalor and the plagues that were ravaging the country at the time, uh, it's, you know, and the poverty, it's perfectly understandable. But, of course, that uh, laid the groundwork for what later emerged uh, in period, first of all, with the first five-year plan, um, the turn to um, uh, what you called industrial Fordism. Uh, it was even more brutal than Fordism in many ways. You know, we're talking about slave labor camps and so on. Um, in order to um, uh, garland um, Siberia and the Arctic with steel, you know, in order to uh, turn it into uh, the, you know, develop the material basis for a true fraternity, um, for true comradeship, for socialism. They, you want to take the Stalinists seriously. They really thought that this would one day develop into the basis for a real socialist society. So that's a sign of... Um, I suppose, on the one hand, how badly um, Soviet democracy had been crushed and defeated, um, particularly in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, but it's also a sign of a certain productivism that is uh, obviously already there in Bolshevism. And I think, frankly, it, you know, 
it's there in Marxism. It's not the only tendency in Marxism, um, as several authors have shown us, but that's the tragedy. You know, it could have been predicted. It could have been foreseen that, uh, you know, there would be an ecological disaster um, if, uh, you know, Stalinism won. Um, but the alternatives were all terrible. Um, and it, it eventually, you know, you, we, we know of Lysenko, for example, as somebody who went to war against geneticists uh, in favor of pseudoscience. It's less known that he went to war against the ecologists, uh, Soviet ecologists. Um, so um, by the time of Holt Stalinism, uh, that stuff was, uh, you know, those uh, potentials were defeated. Um, in favor of a, a rampant uh, industrial developmentalism based on gigantic projects um, intended to impress and wow um, and overwhelm observers and prove uh, that uh, Russia was taking the leap into modernity. That said, um, I would be disingenuous and um, polemical if I didn't acknowledge that in the later Soviet years, there were significant trends towards um, ecological thinking that, um, you know, I mean, uh, maybe tendentious in some ways, uh, in, in as much as they mainly uh, sort of lambasted the West and so on, didn't really take account of how the Soviet Union was based upon environmental destruction too. But nonetheless, they were serious and they had some potential. Indeed, they regarded uh, their role as being to reform uh, what they regarded as a very authoritarian form of socialism. I think probably pissing in the wind by that point. But, um, you know, th th these tendencies didn't di completely disappear. You mentioned the pink tide. Um, and I think it's true that um, what happened to the pink tide states is... You know, it's famously said that oil is a curse of developing states, but um, this was the the basis uh, for uh, the material abundance with which they were able to, uh, you know, um, redistribute some wealth to different sectors of society and to promote some forms of uh, democratic advance. Um, and they didn't really have any many other alternatives unless there were uh, a coalition of social forces available in those societies who were going to challenge and potentially overthrow capitalism, which just didn't really exist at that point. It had been decimated um, principally, of course, uh, as you know, by um, a range of anti-communist death squads through the 60s to the 80s. Um, so there wasn't really much of that, that left. So we um, come into this era in a situation in which um, the proletariat that shouldered the burden of the uh, Bolshevik transformation of society in the 1920s uh, really doesn't exist in that sense anymore. Of course, they're still the working class. Um, they're still the majority class. And they still have uh, certain structural uh, leverage um, so that if they withdrew their labor power um, in a coordinated way, that would uh, cause a real industrial and political crisis. It would give them enormous political power and confidence. Um, but that kind of uh, class for itself, that subjectivity has been demolished over decades. Um, uh, you know, 1989 was the confirmation of that rather than, um, you know, it's happening. Um, so this book um, uh, and, and the essay that was behind the book 
I suppose partly comes out of Salvage's direct um, experience of that. You know, obviously we come out of a certain Trotskyist tradition that was falling apart. Uh, Trotskyists were supposed to be the ones who would survive the end of Stalinism, indeed would thrive. And instead, uh, they find themselves eventually being pretty irrelevant um, and uh, disintegrating too. So we looked at a situation in which essentially... Uh, uh, I think Rosie mentioned uh, the the problem of a, tri- a revolutionary problem without a revolutionary subject. That's the the crisis that we faced. Um, and given our hard bitten commitment to a kind of uh, pessimism, um, which is earned, but which is always desperate to be proved wrong, we thought, you know, what would it be like if we could uh, still defend some version of um, salvaged communism, uh, even in the context of the ruin, even given that, according to some estimates, the crisis is already upon us, um, tipping points have already been reached, the carbon budget may well have been exhausted, it depends on how you measure it. Um, given all that, what is rescuable? What's retrievable? Um, one thing we know is that uh, at this point, you know, the traditional idea of red plenty, you know, in which there'd be abundance for everyone, uh, in which there's potentially no limit to how much people can have, in which, you know, in Soviet planners in the 1960s genuinely thought that within a th- few years, they would be richer than the richest capitalist country in the world, the United States, um, uh, merely through um, uh, far more efficient production techniques. That's gone. There are definite biophysical limits to, uh, you know, uh, the kinds of plenty that we can have. And therefore, we need to think about different kinds of plenty. Um, and that's another thing that we have to rescue from the rubble. Thanks so much, Richard. And I think that really leads neatly on into the next question that I had, which um, gets at precisely this point around the kind of attempt to repurpose some of those old horizons of egalitarian abundance um, that we see in the form from like the Green New Deal right the way through to fully automated luxury communism, um, which kind of seeks to unite the left all the way from Roosevelt to Marx. And I guess the question would be, how and why do you differ from that position? And I'll kind of go to Rosie to, to start on that. Yeah, I mean, I think Richard has already touched on a couple of points, but um, in terms of the Green New Deal, I think Richard's been involved in a number of debates over the last few days and is perhaps best placed to advance a critique. But I think in both cases, the Green New Deal and fully automated luxury communism, fundamentally, to me, the problem is that they don't take seriously the limits of growth if we want to have a kind of non-destructive relationship to the planet. In most forms, there are forms of the Green New Deal you know, that are um, more kind of uh, reticent of that. But uh, in terms of fully fully automated luxury communism, um, which, you know, is predicated on this idea of full automation, a universal basic income, and via both of those, maintaining a high standard of living with little to no work for most people. Um, You know, I have a lot of disagreements with it. Fundamentally, I think it's a fantasy that's predicated on a continued production of technologies that are reliant on finite mineral mining. Um, I think it also ignores the history of automation um, and its actual impact on workers' lives. And uh, I think Gavin Mueller's Breaking Things at Work um, is a really excellent critique of 
that um, fantasy of automation, which in fact, uh, you know, only serves to make work incredibly repetitive and disciplined, um, but rarely actually eradicates all work in any industry. Um, but maybe more fundamentally for us, um, in both of these cases, neither really seems that interested in imagining beyond capitalist definitions of luxury in terms of expensive commodities, what you can own, what you can have. And for me and for the salvage collective more broadly, communism isn't just about abundance, you know, although of course it won't be worthy of the name if it doesn't meet everybody's basic material needs. Fundamentally, communism is a project of freedom, of reconstituting what it means to be human, what it means to have a meaningful life, what it means to have desires, to live in a non-extractive relationship to the planet. Um, so it's much bigger communism we might have, you know, will be in this warmed world that capitalism limits of what we take from the earth, what we release into its atmosphere, living in a more conscious way um, about those limits. I think, you know, in, in either case, there's a kind of fantasy that this one weird trick will mean that we don't, don't have to change very much. And in fact, I think we have to change everything. Thanks so much, Rosie. I actually just wanted to, before we go to Richard, can everybody hear me okay? Yeah. Perfect. Um, just follow up. I think it strikes me that perhaps what we're seeing here is a slippage between, um, well, on the one hand, a recognition of the productive capacity of capitalism to mark the end of scarcity and what seems to be a rehashing of the capitalistic logic of infinite expansion or growth, right? And so what might it mean to grapple with that slippage? Um, and is the idea of abundance really what's at the heart of Marxism? I think on, on the one hand, or of communism, I think on the one hand, you already speak to um, the centrality of freedom, which in many senses seems to have been lost from some of the contemporary discussions about what communism is and what, and the kind of um, focus on the material um, or material wealth. But then also on the other hand, kind of thinking through, well, if capitalism produces us as the kinds of subjects that require the infinite kind of collection of or acquisition of material goods and, and wealth, um, how might socialism produce us differently such that our wants and needs don't include, for example, travel via private jet or even um, kind of the kinds of day-to-day -day, um, consumption which is so normalized already? Um, I mean, to either of you, I kind of wanted to follow on because um, I think it kind of speaks to some of the comments you were making, Rosie. So I was wondering if you wanted to respond to that, then we could turn to Richard. Yeah, I mean, I think probably where we fundamentally different from either of these projects is that we still cleave to a kind of ruptural politics in which the subjects of that process are fundamentally changed, right? That, that 
as you say, we currently are constituted as people who can't really imagine concepts of or can't adequately imagine concepts of luxury that don't involve private ownership of things and um, the having of things and the enjoying of commodities. And it would only be in a process of undoing those logics in a mass event that would that we would be able to reconstitute ourselves to think otherwise, right? We're not, we're not the subjects who will make those imaginaries because we were born of this world. And I think any project of communism has to bear that in mind that we, you know, Mark said, we can't be the cookbook. We can't make the cookbooks of the future because we're not the subjects. We can only try and build the coalitions and the kind of politics that might bring us to the rupture. And the rest is, you know, for the people who come afterwards. And it's, um, I'm just reminded quickly here of, um, I think it's Aaron Benenev in, in criticizing some of the fully automated language who talks about abundance as a social relation, um, which I think has always been kind of uh, automatic to how lots of people on the left um, have thought in recent years, um, you know, that it has a utopian tradition or an early socialist tradition in Britain and William Morris saying fellowship is life, lack of fellowship is death. Um, the, the condition of abundance is not living like today's billionaires live. Um, it's living a life that is luxurious because your needs are met and those needs include various kinds of needs for socialization. Um, and so it's an imaginary of abundance perhaps, but, but not abundance in, in bourgeois terms, not abundance as um, valorization, as um, uh, the, the, the expansion of uh, the capital accumulation uh, to meet more people's needs through the consumption of commodities. Um, anyway, so I don't know if you had anything to say on this, Richard. Um. Well, obviously, uh, in terms of the broader picture of freedom as a form of uh, luxury, um, there's uh, a very good book now by David Graeber and David Wengrow, um, The Dawn of Everything, in which, among other things, uh, they try to expand the imagination regarding the variety of possible human societies, going back to the Paleolithic all the way up to the present day. But one of the interesting points that I found in there was that, um, you know, the, the, the extent to which enlightened thought, as we have uh, understood it, and from which Marx obviously, uh, of which Marx is a legatee, um, uh, really derives from an engagement with uh, indigenous thought, particularly in North America, and the appalled um, critique by uh, North, North American Indians of uh, uh, the way that Europeans lived, their selfishness, their competitiveness, um, their fundamental unhappiness, the ways in which they were damaged, uh, even though they supposedly were the... Um, societies that had it better, uh, that were better off. The idea uh, that you would let someone starve, who, uh, if you could give them food, uh, shocked them. But more important to them was the political unfreedom that Europeans had. Um, and out of that uh, dialectic, um, as much as anything else, you get uh, modern discourses of freedom, um, and specifically liberal freedom, um, which is a, a sort of, you can see it as a compromise formation, an attempt to find a way out of uh, uh, sort of sovereign power and coercion uh, by relying on uh, a subtle mechanisms, coercion known as the market. So I think that um, there are traditions there that we might want to uh, think about in terms of uh, a different way of uh, handling the notion of plenty. Um, as regards to Green New Deal and fully automated luxury communism, I mean, both are polyvalent. Um, fully automated luxury communism less so. Um, I mean, the latter 
can be seen as a last-ditch attempt to turn the weapons of capitalist productivism towards um, luxury for the plenty. But I agree with Rosie, it's it's just not going to happen. It's not predicated upon biophysical realities. Um, and uh, so it, it's, it's a form of cruel optimism. As regards the Green New Deal, I think the version that I that is um, perhaps got more of a future uh, for us is a version that was elaborated by Kate Aronoff uh, and her comrades, uh, including uh, Elisa Bastastoni and others, um, which was basically uh, arguing that the Green New Deal would be a last stimulus. In other words, the point would be to create the infrastructures of public affluence, um, to create um, the, first of all, to convert, uh, to transition the energy source, but uh, second of all, to uh, create the uh, resources with which then to break with capital fundamentally and settle into a slower groove, a uh, slower rhythm um, in which uh, essentially we consume uh, a lot less materials and a lot less energy. Um, and that would be predicated on the idea of um, uh, James Medway talks a little bit about this in a recent essay, you know, um, maybe uh, uh, consuming less, um, working less as well, fundamentally. I mean, there's a form of plenty that is often regarded as a negative. Um, because we've got used to indexing everything to GDP growth, which basically means um, uh, processing uh, uh, ever-expanding amounts of energy and materials unsustainably. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole area of care um, and, and economies of care. And these are things that uh, we could think about in terms of um, relative abundance for us. Um, Unfortunately, of course, you know, Sadiq Khan has his Green New Deal for London. Um, there are various forces like Jeffrey Sachs who uh, are in favor of a Green New Deal, which they understand to involve uh, spending a lot of money, um, not a lot in historical terms, um, but uh, spending a regular sum of money every year until 2050 in order to transition and, you know, uh, use big data to get a smart grid um, and so on. Uh, and uh, it's basically predicated on scientific fantasy. Uh, it's predicated on the idea uh, that all these technologies exist uh, already to facilitate the transition like green biofuels. Um so there are also it's the polyvalence means that there can be all sorts of um, uh, dodgy, uh, unscientific, um, ungrounded, and politically retrograde, retrograde um, technocratic, top-down ideas that can smuggle on the back of that. Um, but given where we are, I think you know we're not going to go to the mass of people and say now what we really need is war communism. I mean Andreas Malm can do that because you know that's the kind of um, intellectual repertoire he's built up. But as a as a mobilizing tool for the masses, um, I don't think that's going to work. I think that's more a way of framing a, a particular predicament like the one we've got. So Green New Deal doesn't seem to me like a terrible way to start a conversation. It's just that we have to be very careful about where it ends up. I want now to um, switch tack slightly. So if that's the um, uh, caution about languages of Green New Deals, both the idea that they can sometimes be um, over-optimistic about our predicament and also that, that sense that they're kind of the Green New Deal is kind of an empty signifier now that can contain every, everything. Um, there's another thing that interested me, in, 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 another kind of line of attack that interested me in the book um, because I wasn't expecting it so much, 
because it's a kind of another easy cop out alongside techno futurism that the left can sometimes opt for instead or as well, um, which is the claim that we're necessary because uh, nothing else can save the planet. Um, and so this can combine with the optimistic Green New Deal, or it could be a much more pessimistic language of, you know, we can't do very much, but at least the left are the only people, this is again the socialism or barbarism claim, um, the claim, and, and this is now I think very common in, in, in the left trying to find an approach to climate politics. Oh good, we've got an argument for socialism now because capitalism can only completely destroy the planet. And the book I think has a much more realistic tougher kind of grounding of, look, there are different kinds of climate politics possible. Um, it's not extinction or socialism in the, obviously the language of extinction rebellion, uh, not that they're saying all socialism. Um, so I, I just wondered if you could sketch for us, Richard and then Rosie, uh, something about that, about, about an approach to climate salvage communism that doesn't say it's this miserable picture of salvage communism or the world is up in flames. Uh, what, are the, uh, what are the alternative parts? Um, well, uh, it, I think essentially um, there is an argument or there's a, a, a structure of feeling on the left um, from which arguments flow that basically, um, uh, you know, since capitalism can't deliver a solution to this problem, and that's absolutely clear, uh, only... Uh, a re truly revolutionary politics that breaks the back of capital relation can uh, rescue humanity. Um, however, that doesn't mean that that uh, is the only um, kind of program, ecological program, that could, A, gain support and, B, at least attenuate um, in various ways uh, the damage that's done to the planet. One of the nightmares that uh, I have, and we talk about this in the um, in the essay in the book, uh, is that fascism um, can represent itself as being vaguely plausible in this context um, in a number of ways. First, um, the point about fascism is that it would transfer the costs of the climate crisis to the very poor. They would be obviously, I think, quite happy for, uh, you know, islands in the Pacific to go under the sea. They're not concerned about that particularly, but they might be interested in a, a certain idiom of uh, eco-fascism. Um, and this is growing as we've seen with the sort of um, uh, Christchurch mosque shooter, a number of eco-fascist lone wolves in the United States. There's a growing tendency here. Um, they, they might adopt, for example, um, uh, population control solutions, which are extremely popular. I mean, even David Attenborough talks about, in, in Malthusian terms, about overpopulation. You can see how that would give way to new forms of patriarchy, uh, new forms of state authoritarianism. And then, of course, there would be the whole question of how do you green the energy system? Um, because the energy transition um, is, is, you know, it, it's not particularly... Um, either environmentally or socially, a clean process. Uh, first of all, the rare metals that are used to produce, say, solar panels uh, are mined in the most horrendous conditions, extremely exploitative in labor terms, um, and they, are, they, they result in enormous amounts of pollution. So uh, there's a dilemma there. Do, does that just become a new form of uh, colonialism um, or just a particularly aggressive form of capitalist imperialism? Um, so that's one thing. 
Um, then there's the question of once you've got your uh, greened up energy system set up, you've got your solar concentrated uh, concentrated solar power plants in the middle of the desert, say in North Africa. Um, you've got um, uh, you know um, uh, sort of hydropower stations set up variously. Where is the power carried to? You know, it would be a, a strange thing if uh, having developed this global system with high voltage AC lines connecting people up everywhere, that most of the power still went from North Africa or from various poor parts of the world to Europe and uh, North America. Um, and you could see that there would be, uh, given the context of relative scarcity, uh, drivers towards uh, neo-imperialist war. Uh, to make that happen, um, and you know, if if anything, new forms of uh, labour exploitation, even more brutal. Um, and of course, then there's questions like shortage. You know, given ocean acidification, given the overfishing of the oceans, given the um, erosion of topsoil fertility, um, there are ways in which the food chain, given mass extinction, the food chain is going to become a lot more precarious. In some places, it might just uh, disintegrate and melt down. Um, uh, the um, Mekong Delta is one of the greatest sources of food and fish in, in the world. Um, if that starts filling up with salted seawater, as is very likely to happen, those fish will die. So, you know, who is going to pay the cost? Who is going to die off? Um, and you can see in that context um, sort of uh, fascist ideas of, um, you know, there, there's uh, sort of what, what they sometimes call ethno-pluralism. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a complete uh, misnomer for what they they really want, um, but essentially it, it means uh, you know ethnic absolutism, um, uh, preserving the white race in Europe, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, letting everybody else die. You can see those forms of politics gaining a certain kind of traction and plausibility in the context of despair and with a sufficient crisis of agency, and particularly with a sufficient crisis of the state. And then obviously suppose the state actually adapts pretty well. Um, and protects uh, a streamlined, nastier, more brutal form of capital accumulation, um, but does so using the resources of, for example, the Pentagon, the security state, solar geoengineering, um, you know, global institutions that aren't really accountable to anybody, but which have massive effects on people's lives, um, and which are basically trying to simulate the effects of volcanic explosions uh, in the atmosphere in order to cool the planet in ways that might have devastating consequences for people, particularly people in poorer parts of the world. So there are various, various nasty forms of politics. What is true to say is that um, none of these solutions would fundamentally solve the problem. They would be mitigating. They would be reducing the consequences or displacing the consequences. They would be managing it. And... The way in which that's been done until now has been fossil denialism. Um, and it's not surprising that the far right has uh, cleaved heavily towards uh, the denialist uh, ideologies and apparatuses uh, bequeathed by the fossil fuel industry. Um, and fossil denialism basically is a, a sort of promise that your plenty, your um, sort of petro-modernity will not be harmed um, and just let all those poor people die elsewhere, let the climate refugees stay behind the wall, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, it could give way to various forms of uh, nasty authoritarian and racist capitalism up to an extreme, up to an, and including at the extreme genocidal fascism. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have much more 
to add, I think Richard's kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think in terms of the kind of classic binary of socialism or barbarism, you know, barbarism's already here. It's just not necessarily where we are right now. Um, I think like you can look at, for instance, like the global North's response to the pandemic of this vaccine apartheid, hoarding vaccines more than we need in the global North so such that people in the global south have no access to it they won't release the um the copyright or patent for um the vaccines so that they can be made affordably and also at the same time making vaccination the precondition for travel to the global north such that borders are even harder to cross than they already were um you know this is already a kind of eco barbarism given that the pandemic comes out of you know a certain kind of relationship with um wild land. Um, and I think there's a lot more of that to come. So I think, you know, one of the, one of the ways that there's no easy out of that is that, you know, these, these tendencies have always coexisted. Um, and sadly the choice is not as stark as, as we almost might wish it would be since socialism becomes the obvious choice. I guess it would also, sorry, the little ones come in. Um, I guess it would also be um, important to note that as we've seen demonstrated with the pandemic, that the barbarism and the kind of ethnic absolutism that that, um, Richard talks about, ironically, also doesn't serve the interests of the global north, right? Because what we're faced with now is a situation in which there um, may be endless um, kind of mutations of the virus and kind of thinking about how part of that rests on um, reinvigorating some of the same kind of um, spatial logics, the idea that the, the, the global South is so far other that it couldn't possibly have an impact um, on us over here. But I wanted to turn um, to another question, and I, I, I think this is... Um, really important. So kind of thinking through how um, different strains or strands um, of the left um, respond to what are the kind of moralistic liberal arguments or denunciations of consumer choices, whether that's in the form of, you know, um, vegetarianism or veganism or the, in the form of, you know, what, what what car one chooses to drive. And the left often prefers to talk about the conspicuous consumption of the wealthy. You'll see um, some of the content being put out around COP, um, COP26 on the kind of relative emissions of the private jets, which I believe it was 118 private jets flown into COP26 and their destructive um, political choices from the um, political elites. But in the book, the tragedy is that we're all conscripted into a way of living which essentially is destroying the planet Um, and though we're not actually equal beneficiaries of it we're all kind of forced into a logic of behavior um, which has a cumulatory effect so what does this say about complicity Um, and I'd be interested also to think more broadly about the role of complicity in a distinctly Marxist non-moralistic politics, um, but also about the possibility of radical politics that can cohere opposition to devastation and about a transition out of it. I hope that made sense. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not that I disagree with leftists who want to fight back against elites who try to 
blame everyone for emissions. Um, James Meadway, um, in a recent piece, cites statistics that show, I think from the Financial Times, that show that the emissions of the poorest 50% of the richest G20 nations are closer to the poorest 50% of the other G20 nations than they are to the emissions of the top 10% of their own countries. So, you know, it's not that everybody is equally to blame for emissions in some moralistic way, but it's also, you know, not the case. I think the thing that we're then pushing back on with some of the left is that it's not that there are individual capitalists who are making bad choices or even individual companies in the sense that if those companies weren't doing it, there's a financial imperative for somebody to do it. That we're all trapped in this logic of accumulation that everybody is you know, in service to this system whereby there has to be relentless accumulation, relentless um, profit-making. So I think... Obviously, if it wasn't for the case, we wouldn't be in this place. It's true. If we weren't for the rich, sorry, we wouldn't be in this place. It's formally true in the sense that those happen to be the people who are in, in charge of those companies. But it do, all, doesn't mean that all of our lives don't need to change. It's just that those changes aren't going to be the result of a series of individual choices. That there's a, you know, there's a nuance. There's, there's this kind of double move. On the one hand... Not everybody is to blame. On the other hand, everybody will have to adjust or, um, you know, get used to a different kind of, as Richard was saying, you know, there's a, there's a kind of abundance that capitalism sells us, which is driving an SUV and having the latest iPhone and, um, you know, taking a series of flights every year or whatever. And I think one of the things we have to grapple with if we're serious about either degrowth or, you know, facing the limits of accumulation is coming up with um, ways of, yeah, thinking through abundance that, that don't, don't rely on those categories. So, you know, as Richard was saying, abundance of care, abundance of time, abundance of nature, you know, a different way of thinking through what it means to have a luxurious life that isn't a reliance on the things that we're offered, um, you know, in a way over the course of um, the last 50 years, as you've seen the kind of recession of collective subjectivity, collectives in terms of trade unions, in terms of, you know, adequate political representation, in terms of um, the, you know, things that are offered by European welfare states, what's been taken away has then been offered back to us in a form of commodities. And of course, we're complicit in the sense that people have to a degree accepted that um, that offer, but in a realm where everybody's choices were so limited. Um, so I think there's a way to kind of get out of that, to have a, as you say, Anya, a Marxism without moralism that says we're all rotten to the core by this system, but it was the system that we were, we, we'd never given any other alternative. Um, and there is still, you know, something driving it that we, that we can overcome. Um, yeah, maybe Richard has more to say on that. Well, uh, one of my favorite, uh, sort of quotes from the Bible, uh, says that all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Um, the sort of the theme of tragedy, tragedy demands, I think, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the author, uh, the author of a book called Tragedy, the Greeks and Us, um, 
points out that uh, tragedy demands that we are complicit in our fate. Uh, there is some way in which we brought this on through a fatal flaw or whatever it is. Uh, we hear, but we don't listen. We look, but we see nothing. Uh, but when it comes to climate change, there's another sense of complicity. Extinction. Extinction is what there is to eat. Uh, it's what there is to wear. We all depend upon the products of the petrochemical industry. It's not just energy. Many things that we wear, the many things that we wash our hairs, hair with, comes from either petrochemicals or crop monoculture. Um, and so we are um, devouring our own extinction. We produce and consume the means of extinction. Um, and then there's a, you know, the, 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 the sort of unevenness. James Butler uh, made a good point about this. Um, it's been said that 70% of emissions uh, from, uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions and so on um, come from the top 100 corporations. Um, but as he pointed out, these companies have outputs. It's not straightforwardly that uh, we're all equally implicated, but there are very few people on the planet who are not in one sense or another doing capitalism. There are small indigenous communities uh, who have avoided um, you know, uh, the worst implication with capitalism. There are some people who have never had access to wage labor in their lives, but still have to buy things. So we're all up to our necks in it one way or the other, which is not the same thing as saying that we're all guilty or all equally so. Um, so I think that um, if we uh, if we think about it in these terms, um, I suppose this leads me to think about um, another possible universality, um, which is that you know Paul Gilroy writing about planetary humanism, um, and I don't know if it intentionally had an ecological overtone, but it seems to me extremely relevant now suggested that uh, rather than uh, the universality of the enlightened human being, the human being of um, uh, sort of 18th century Europe, um, the, the things that make us universal are susceptibility, um, suffering, um, you know, the basically tragic condition of human beings, uh, that uh, we are all born with a certain susceptibility and we're all going to die. Um, and that that um, is... Uh, the. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody is equally susceptible, but it can ground a universal politics more readily than any of the essentializing claims uh, that we get, uh, you know, from the legacy of the Enlightenment. Um, and so I wonder if, um, you know, it's not about um, moralizing, because obviously moralizing doesn't help. The whole point about moralizing is to set up an apparatus of guilt. Um, you can see how this would work out in the context of uh, what uh, Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright called the climate leviathan, essentially a, a, a rejigged capitalist subjectivity where individual citizens are said to have a carbon debt, and thus being carbon indebted, they have to uh, delegate the task of repaying that debt to their national states. Um, what then happens, of course, is quite likely to involve, if um, recent uh, sort of state discourses or anything to go by, um, various forms of um, geoengineering coupled with austerity for the poor. Geoengineering, I mean, here's the thing that I want people to think about. Um, I don't want to moralize particularly about geoengineering technologies. Obviously, we have to be wary of our own hubris, because having um, been 
so badly wrong in the past about, uh, say, fossil fuels and that, that having led us to disaster, it would be crazy to embark upon the idea of pumping the atmosphere full of sulfates um, uh, in, in the hope of uh, cooling the planet. But the thing that occurred to me about this is that the point about the, this kind of geoengineering technology is that it creates a white sky. Um, I realize that this is not what most people are thinking about in terms of uh, climate catastrophe, but I really think that would be an absolute catastrophe. And I think it would be a catastrophe in the sense that the planet is, is more emotionally and, hum and historically important to us uh, uh, than we know. And the destruction of the planet um, matters more to us than we know. And uh, the sort of uh, the idea that every single part of it should be subordinated to the frame of capital accumulation, MCM, um, that every single part of it should be, um, uh, you know, every, the, the chain of life, you know, should be uh, subsumed in real terms into capital. Um, I think is is not just uh, you know it's not just a, a minor aesthetic misfortune. Um, it's an absolute calamity. And there's another sense in which um, we can claim a certain universality. I think um, this planet is you know to sound a cliche the only one we've got. We've got the Vernadsky and biosphere. Um, uh, maybe depending on your estimate, it could be anything between 25 to 100 kilometers deep. Um, and uh, it's uh, got a few um, scant resources in it. And if we destroy it, um, that's it, essentially. So um, that is our tragedy at the moment. Um, we, have, uh, we, we have the knowledge Potentially, in principle, we have the means to do something about it, but those means fundamentally are tragic because they will require violent contestation. Uh, it's difficult to see these things being handled in the spirit of parliamentary democracy, and that violent contestation could unleash all forms of um, absolutist and totalitarian thinking that one doesn't even want to contemplate. So this is the tragedy that we face at the moment. You know, this can sound very grim, but there is, you know, salvage communism as the work of repair in a, in, in a broken situation. Um, but there is also something very uplifting about something that Richard just said about the horror of a white sky and about things that Rosie's been saying in this conversation too, which is things Rosie's been stressing, which is um, salvage communism as recovering the left's tradition of thinking that the left is about recuperating goods that matter to us, that are slipping away from us, um, that, uh, that it's about being able to experience and appreciate the beauty of the world, um, which is being destroyed. Um, and there is, I mean, the, a late friend of Salvage, uh, Neil Davidson, once said to me that um, Marxism has more in common with conservatism than with liberalism, because both of them are based in a philosophical anthropology, a claim about what human beings are, um, and therefore what kind of world you can build out of that. Now, there's a big controversy about the relationship between Marxism and philosophical anthropology. Um, but the idea that um, what we're trying to salvage is aspects of the world, um, 
is a, as it stands, which is being destroyed, um, uh, is, is a long tradition that, you know, I mean, Lenin thought that he was trying to make revolution in part to salvage the norms of bourgeois democracy, um, uh, which, of course, he wanted to reformat and, and experience on a higher plane, but which he thought were being uh, stripped away by the coming of authoritarian, militaristic, bureaucratic power in the early 20th century. So there is a, a salvage communism trying to get back to not just we want a material abundance in bourgeois terms, but we want to uh, recover um, some of the joy of life that the value form uh, might uh, hide. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, something different, though. Uh, and this is my last question. Um, I know Annie has, has more. Um, but I, um, I, I think we should touch on something which often, isn't often enough discussed in these uh, debates, which is the question of the state. It is now beginning to be um, discussed. Rosie talked about a communism of freedom. Um, much of the debate around climate change assumes on the left that we need a big, aggressive state. Uh, we get parallels to war, whether it's the New Deal and World War II parallel among liberals or Andreas Malm's war communism parallel, which are about the huge mobilization of state resources to deal from above with the problem. Uh, Paul Mason's post-capitalism a few years ago uh, cast this picture of a networked individual, a libertarian left future, and then at the end says, oh, actually, of course, climate change rules all this out and we need a, a big Stalinist state apparatus. Um, uh, and I want to know what you two think about um, about whether that's right. You know, one of the weird things about Andreas Mann's invocation of war communism is it's unclear whether he's talking, perhaps this is ungenerous of me, but it's sometimes unclear to me whether he's talking about wanting existing states to do these enormous uh, uh, interventions uh, or whether he's with Lenin's moment, which I don't think most of us are, um, where there was this thing called the Soviet and there was a kind of embryo of a different kind of state power. Um, uh, is the state our, or some kind of state our agent? Can we have a, a salvage communism from below? Um, what, what, what does that uh, look like? Um, well, um, it seems perfectly obvious to me that we can't bypass the state. The scale of the transformation that's required, uh, I mean, we're talking about suppressing profitable fossil fuel corporations, uh, shutting down hundreds, thousands of mines um, and gas wells um, and oil wells. Uh, we're talking about uh, cancelling hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of investment, which uh, props up maybe trillions of dollars in the stock markets. Um, we're talking about a major economic and social and political crisis and how that would be managed without uh, uh, statecraft, um, I, I have no idea. Uh, Mom makes the point that this is not going to be, uh, this sort of program can't be delivered by a, a mutual in Bristol, you know. Um, so I think that he's absolutely 100% right about that. But one thing I would say is, you know, we talk about the state. The state doesn't have any agency. The state isn't an agent in and of itself. That doesn't mean it's neutral, and it doesn't mean it's on our side. Um, but when we talk about the state, it's a misnomer because uh, the state, uh, you know, the, the 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 definite article there is misleading. It's uh, it's a reified abstraction. It's a myth. It's an idea which uh, we use to uh, describe certain palpable realities, um, which are organized within a field of forces. Uh, as, as Polancis describes the state as a strategic field, um, uh, and a field in which there is uh, you know, constantly struggle between various political and social forces, but it's a field that's dominated 
uh, not just you know in, on account of personnel, but by its very formal setup by the ruling class. In this case, by the capitalist class. Um, the question is, uh, given that we have to use the state or we have to uh, fight for uh, power within the state, um, given that uh, we are unlikely to see a socialist revolution uh, in time to rescue humanity, and given that it's unclear um, that uh, were such a thing attempted, it would be any more successful than the one that happened in 1917, simply because of uh, the dissipation of forces. Um, because of the intellectual crisis of Marxism long running, um, you know, because of the uh, breakup of the classical combination of agency and ideas that, you know, constituted traditional socialism, all of that stuff. Given this, um, how do we traverse the state that is arrayed against us? How do we enter enemy territory? Um, uh, and I don't think that um, uh the, the answer is therefore, uh, well, we just get some good people elected and they'll fight for us, you know, like get Jeremy Corbyn in uh, or Bernie Sanders elected. Uh, that can be a, a process, a punctuating moment, but it can only be that. Balance um, uh, has talked about ruptures, uh, talked about real uh, shake up within the state, um, where, wherein you uh, try to form uh, oppositional forces and alliances within the state. And by the way, Crucially, when we talk about the state, we are not just talking about parliament. It is obviously so much more than that and has been um, it, it throughout its entire history. But more than that, in the 21st century, the state is also the local job centre. It's also your local council. It's what provides you with uh, garbage collection. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of employees working for the state, all working class. They are the most trade unionised people in the country, in this country. Um, they, uh, they are our class allies. So there are ways in which we've got to think about uh, building up uh, alliances uh, within the state in those terms as well. Um, so I don't think we can just bypass it. There's no such thing as, um, you know, being outside the state because the distinction between state and non-state is actually internal to the state. It's an effect of the state's legal processes. It's um, effectuation of um, a, a, an institutional separation uh, between politics and production relations. So um, th that brings us back to the question of, is it big state? You know, is that what we're talking about? You know, if we can only uh, beef up the state, um, then everything will be solved. I don't think so necessarily. Clearly, there are some ways in which um, some state capacities which have to be expanded quite dramatically. Um, but it seems to me that um, there are, uh, you know, in neoliberal period, we were we're told uh, it was a small state. In reality, state spending didn't uh, fall. It flatlined, but it didn't fall. Um, state spending under Thatcher remained more or less what it was, um, around 40-45%. Um, the most of which uh, state spending actually fell was in the um, peak neoliberal, peak new labor, uh, new democrat era. But, you know, by and large, this, it's remained a large state, and what's happened is that the spending has been shifted around, so a lot more money is being spent on ironing out the contradictions in uh, capital accumulation, a lot more money is being spent on repression, on coercion, um, a lot more money is being spent on constituting people as neoliberal subjects and supporting market relations through the state, uh, a lot more money is being spent on rentier sections of capital and so on. So. The question is priorities. 
Um, and then there's the, you know, there's the parts of the state that um, we unproblematically encounter as an enemy. You know, we don't necessarily encounter uh, welfare as an enemy in the same way that we do the Home Office. Um, so um, when it comes to something like climate refugees, we are going to have to wage a struggle to isolate um, the, the, the forces, the social and political forces, the civil society forces behind the Home Office's version of um, uh, politics. Um, so those, those are the ways that I can think of to approach this question. As for Mom's uh, account, I would just co conclude by saying, I think, uh, yes, there's a problem of agency in his, in his analysis. Um, in as much as there's a problem of agency for all of us, because none of us know who is going to implement our program, whether we're for salvage communism, war communism, eco-terrorism, the Green New Deal, or some uh, sappy sort of um, uh, middle-term program. We don't know who is able to implement that because the proletariat classically constituted does not exist. I would regard Malm's intervention as an attempt, a tragedian attempt, to make do with the bad new things. These are the bad things that we've got. These are the circumstances that we've got. Lenin, in the worst circumstances, said, let's take the means that have been given to us by the warmongers, by the capitalists, by the imperialists, and try to turn them towards building socialism. Um, we may face a similarly tragic choice today. Um, and then the question still remains, who the hell is going to implement this? How are we going to build up those caters? Um, it's good enough to say we need those caters and we've got time perhaps to uh, build them up, but um, how? It's not like we haven't been trying. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with anything Richard said. Um, I think uh, maybe to loop back to something that Richard said earlier about the kind of Green New Deal politics kind of gives you one way into it, which is, you know, Kate Aronoff's um, formulation as basically that, you know, the Green New Deal functions as a kind of transitional program in two senses, transition in terms of fuels, but also perhaps in terms of um, to a different kind of economy. Um, and, you know, perhaps it will be the case that we can get, you know, a broad enough coalition of forces behind a Green New Deal such that, you know, a new kind of um, green working class is constituted in the global north such that we could defend that program when it necessarily comes under attack, perhaps. But um, I don't know that there's any easy answer to that question. I can't really blame Malm for avoiding um, positing who might implement his war communism, which, um, you know, is, is really the golden question. You know, we can, we can state um, what we might do if we ever were in control, but um, how we get there is really uh, still all to play for. Thanks so much to both of you. I think I'm going to pivot slightly um, to think about uh, the global south. Um, and we kind of are increasingly hearing about this thing, eco-imperialism. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, is there a possible eco-anti-imperialism? And if climate destruction uh, wrought by capital accumulation highlights the need to talk of communism again, um, does the devastation or the particular 
vulnerability of the global south, um, also highlight the need to talk about a new anti-colonial politics. And I want to kind of tie this in with a question that we received um, from the audience and um, maybe begin to think a bit through this, uh, which uh, taught us about... Uh, the land back movement as a means of attaining the stated goals of European um, communists rather than kind of colonize the institutions. And I guess this kind of speaks also to uh, some of the comments that we've just heard about m making or grappling with the hand that we've been given. I think that um, there are clearly no easy answers. And if we're thinking about a, a, a world which is produced or subjects within a world who are all produced to behave, conceive of themselves in capitalistic terms, whether that's explicitly or implicitly in terms of consumption, um, then I think that there can be a tendency to think that focusing, little one, to think that focusing most or exclusively on the recovery shall we uh go to one of you and then wait for annie to get back to us because as ever in these events annie is both um uh, running the event and also doing her childcare, um which is kind of annie's life as a political militant um which I think has all kinds of implications for how we think about a salvage communism and a communism beyond um, abstract labour, not just of leisure, but of care. Um, but um, so when she is ready, let's let's come back to her. But I just wondered if one of you wanted to, to, to lead off on that question of we hear about the world of carbon offsetting, uh, the global south being made to pay for the global north and eco-imperialism. Um, uh, but whether there's a possible um, eco-anti-imperialism, because in the 20th century anti-colonial politics, there was an attempt to generalise often from the particular experience of humiliation and subjugation of empire to an opposition to alienate to the alienation of powers, which was also represented by capital, um, the alienation of power to the boss, to the impersonal marketplace. Um, and so could, is there coming, one of the striking things about the COP conference is seeing the geographical dividing lines presented by rich Western countries as the responsible, classically, the responsible West against China and India, um, who are irresponsible. And then uh, in, res in response, uh, lots of nations much smaller and poorer than China and India saying we're the ones being ravaged uh, and we need 1.5. Uh, Mia Motley, the, the Prime Minister of Barbados, for example, um, uh, we need strong limits on uh, 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 um, on, on rising temperatures. And that raised to me a question about whether there's a possibility of generalizing from the experience of having one's life wrecked for the profits of the global north to an eco-anti-imperialism that is a salvage anti-imperialism. We want to save um, our form of life um, uh, from destruction and in saving it, transform it um, as well. Is there a, an anti-colonial politics here? Yeah, I think certainly. Um, sorry to overquote him, but Andreas Malm, um, in a previous issue of Salvage, wrote this beautiful essay, um, which is about kind of the lessons that the climate movement can learn from the anti-colonial politics of Palestine and Palestinian resistance. Um, and he kind of posits that, um, you know, with kind of Naomi Klein and others, that, you know, what you can see happening in Palestine will eventually come for all of us under um, a warming world that essentially you're seeing, um, yeah, that you're seeing a kind of test case. Um, and that I think perhaps to link back to what you said earlier, Barnaby, that it's rare that um, 
theory makes it from the global south to the global north. And I think to think this through in those ways, Malm links it back to say that, you know, in the same way as we're talking about kind of nostalgia for a blue sky and nostalgia for, um, you know, for snow on the ground and nostalgia for a certain kind of um, climate, um, that, that was also the language and is, of course, the language used by most Palestinians, a kind of nostalgia for a land before Zionism, a land before um, before occupation, um, and certainly has long been the language of anti-colonial movements. Um, and I think that there are some really interesting threads to be drawn there. And I think, you know, as I think Annie was getting to, the, obviously the experience of global warming is, you know, it's not a universal experience. It, it's very very clearly um, affects some populations, some geographies, some classes more than others. And in that context, I don't know that there can be an eco-socialism without an anti-imperialism. I don't know that that would make any sense. You know, the, the climate crisis is, you know, the truly global crisis and capitalism hasn't gotten any less global. Um, you know, you, you can think about the ways that we're kind of sutured together by these global supply chains now that you have, you know, workers in the global south mining for rare minerals that go into particular technologies that are built in factories in China, then shipped to the global north and collected by port workers and then taken to warehouses where, you know, people work in also desperate conditions and then delivered by um workers in the global north that there's a you know what once might have been contained within a national economy is now stretched around the globe that every everything in our politics has to transcend national boundaries now as much as ever i don't see why it could how it could possibly be the case that climate change would be the the exception there um the you know most of the kind of uh or much of the continued extraction in the global south is is done by European and American companies, protected by European and American armies, um, you know, and contributes daily to um, to climate destruction. The, the whole thing is is almost one problem. Um, so I think there's necessarily an anti-imperialism implied that should certainly be kind of drawn out. And there's also a question presented both by climate change and by empire, which is. Um, how much are we trying to save and how much do we grapple with the impossibility of reversal of uh, uh, the, the, this question of complicity we were discussing? Uh, and it's very important to Marx, um, at thinking that um, when once we're conscripted to a form of life, uh, you can't just undo it. Uh, so you have to find a future beyond it, uh, but you can't. And I think this is some of Annie's criticism of some of the land back uh, politics that she might be wanting to talk about um, I don't know if Annie wants to go or if we should uh, go straight to Richard. Annie, are you back with us? And Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, I guess it does kind of get to the heart of it. I think that there is, um, there is a different kind of, so we talked earlier of the left almost utopianism of the possibility of um, abundance in consumption. Um, but I guess there's a different kind of utopianism, which is the idea of a complete reversal of the processes of capitalism purely through an exchange of power from the elites of global North societies to the elites of global South societies. And I think um, 
it is kind of important to think about um, firstly the role of the recession of the anti-colonial horizon has played in the way that kind of global politics is 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 conceived of, in particular the way that elites of those societies are able to kind of present themselves as representatives of, even though they are deeply complicit in, and many times are deeply complicit in kind of ecological disasters that they're faced with. I mean, to give one example, um, uh, thinking about... Um, the like processes of oil extraction in Nigeria. And I, I do remember there being a panel at COP26 uh, where Buhari was a kind of celebrated guest, right? And thinking about the complicity of um, elites within those states. And then how do we think through kind of, it seems what Rosie was getting at, a politics which doesn't draw that draw the dividing line between simply the global north and the global south, but recognizes that precisely the same kind of chains of production supply chains um, involve people both within the global north and also within the global south. And I think that harkens back to the the table we saw earlier, which which kind of pointed out that the kind of poorest in the global north consume, uh, I guess, more similar levels to the those in the global south and to the elites within their societies, right? And so how do we move ourselves beyond this binarism of thinking, you know, brown or black equals um, less culpable versus like white equals more culpable? And how do we um, begin to, because I do think it requires mass politics, but not mass politics, which is bound within the nation's borders, right? And that I think we often talk about that in the case of the context of the global north, right? We talk about how you can't have a nationalistic socialism or patriotic socialism, all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's also true of the global south. Final thing I'll say on this, you know, one of the common misconceptions, people kind of talk about national liberation and kind of use it as a full guy of this kind of like insular thinking, Um and recognizing that actually the politics of the global South in, and an anti-colonial politics is not simply to construct the nation, but also to construct a broader um, constituency for revolutionary politics. And I think that that's absolutely what's needed in the case of um, transformation on, on, on the climate front. I hope that all made sense. But I'll um, kind of turn over to Richard now for any thoughts. Um. I absolutely 100% agree with all of that. And I think it's very important that uh, as we um, embrace um, uh, an eco-anti-imperialism, we don't fall into the trap of what uh, I think Barnaby might recognize as campism. You know, the idea that uh, because uh, the capitals on our side of the world are terrible, maybe it's not so bad in China. You know, what we have seen in this COP26 um, notwithstanding uh, Modi's declaration that he's going to get to net zero by 2070, which is an easy enough promise for him to make uh, because he won't uh, live to see it, um, uh, and it's highly unlikely that uh, he'll attempt to deliver it. Um, uh, but uh, it's very clear that uh, uh, you know they've opposed uh, restrictions on the extraction of coal. Um, it's very important to their development, to the development uh, that favours their... Um, uh, sort of uh, globally integrated capitalist classes, um, and uh, it's um, it's 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 one of the ways in which capitalism is increasingly, well, let's say that Europe is decentered in the capitalist system. Uh, Europe is no longer increasingly so 
um, the center of the, the the sort of capitalist universe. Um, and so we're going to have to come up with a, a more sophisticated way of approaching this. Um, I want to say something uh, very briefly about um, ethnicity. I don't exactly know how to uh, theorize this, um, but it does seem to be true in some way that ethnicity, uh, uh, in all its variations, um, whether it manifests as national identity, race, religious identity, etc., in some ways uh, appears to be the grammar of capital. It appears to be a, a sort of a persistent um, recurrent uh, feature of capital. And I, I'm not as sure exactly how or why that should be, because I'm rooted in a, a sort of tradition of Marxism that uh, tends has historically tended to think that capital is indifferent to everything but the color of your money, etc. And uh, but I think if that's the case, that's uh, that's a speculation on my part. But if that is the case, and we've got to figure out how and why, um, it does suggest uh, that it's right to say that the Palestinian situation is going to be globalized rather than being the last bastion of colonialism in the world. Uh, what we can see there with um, the advance of the sort of racist settlers, um, you know, uh, stealing land, stealing water supplies in context of shortage, um, stealing resources with which to build up their, form, their forms of uh, insulated, heavily armed, garrisoned comfort um, to it, with which to enjoy the pleasures of decivilization, frankly, uh, murdering Palestinians tormenting, uh, throwing rocks at Palestinian kids, um, having them arrested, taken away, um, and some of them are never seen again. All of that sort of stuff um, uh, is rooted in uh, the idea of um, a, a zero-sum game, uh, that uh, somebody has to be the universal scapegoat who pays for all our sins. Um, but I just want to finish on um, this. Um, just to prove that I wasn't being sentimental about our uh, relationship to the earth and the planet and so on earlier. Uh, and maybe I will still be sentimental. I don't know, but um, there's, um, uh, there's a sense in which um, part of the emotional and intellectual resistance to Zionist colonialism and to that violence uh, is, uh, takes the form of what Raja Shahada calls uh, Sarha, uh, which is um, basically a traditional Palestinian practice of going on a long directionless walk. Um, it's a sort of Thoreauvian pilgrimage to experience the landscape and it's a multitude of surprises. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it seems to be important to have, you know, maybe there are ways in which we can de-territorialize and denationalize our relationship to land, to nature, to the geological facts, the substrate of our existence, to matter, in short, um, to matter which matters unconditionally. Um, that's all I've got to say about that. Ooh, so I did, I, I am conscious that it's already eight o'clock. Um, so I'll kind of make one final comment because I couldn't help myself after Richard just said that. Um, I think on this question of ethnicity, one of the things that I'm grappling with is the way in which the form of ethnicity has been abstracted, particularly within the neoliberal era. And I think there's a tradition within black radical thought of, um, of recognizing that it has not always been the case. Um, so um, 
if we are, for example, to take um, what I work most closely on, which is blackness, right? Um, where there was a historical moment in which particularly um, through the process of colonization, and this is why we see the earliest nationalist struggles as being worker struggles um, in that time, um, where blackness could be pegged to a process of proletarianization, the internal transformations, and in a sense we are um, we are victims of our own successes, the or our own victories. Um, the internal class transformations and the class dynamics of blackness have meant that today blackness functions simply as an abstraction. And it always brings me back to um, Fanon when he talks about how there could only be in his time such a thing as a white race, because whiteness, I think, is the kind of epitome of, 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 of ethnicity as abstraction, which is that it functions to obscure all of the internal dynamics of exploitation which happen within it. And I think it's important to think through this, not just on in terms of um, kind of how we conceive of anti-imperialism or anti-colonial struggle, um, okay, um, it's, it's, it's important to kind of think through, not just in terms of how we conceive of anti-colonial struggle, or even in terms of how we think of anti-capitalist politics, but on the front of climate, I think it's important because one of the tragedies of what we're left to grapple with, we kind of think of an either-or project, right? We think, you know, um, on the one hand, here are the material facts that we're faced with, and then we have to respond to those material facts with a program which can overcome the, the rapid speed at which we're hurtling towards disaster or may already be in disaster on the other hand we can build these like mass um mass coalitions right with people at where they're at and i think at point we have to recognize that what we're gifted or handed is not just a shit circumstance in terms of the material facts but also people who are produced as subjects um who are um living in the abstraction of community or the commons or communal identity, right? How do you construct a, a political project in which the only way in which people engage with their ethnicity is precisely through these processes of extraction, processes of consumption? Um, I hope that made sense. It made sense in my head. <laughs> but I think it's now five past. I'm, if Barnaby's around, I'm going to turn to Barnaby to, to kind of close us off. Shit, Annie, I think we were getting you closing us off. Uh, this is like, you know, I, I, was, I was just sat there relaxing and enjoying you uh, closing us out. Well, I want to thank everyone. Um, I think this has been a really great discussion. Um, it's been very nice having a conversation with comrades um, and, uh, and, and, and teasing out some of the politics that you two, Rosie and Richard, along with other founding members of the Salvage Collective have been working on for a long time and that me and Annie found ourselves in thinking similar kinds of things and it's, it's very great to be involved. Um, so we're very grateful to you both. Uh, we're also very grateful to Haymarket Books for co-hosting us and for this event to Verso Books for co-hosting us as well. Everyone should buy the book. Here it is. Uh, this is less technologically apt than actually having it on the screen, uh, I know, but there you go. Um, um, and uh, it's very short, very easy read. Um, and the last thing to say is just that uh, if you subscribe by the end of the year, 
uh, well, the end of the pagan secular year, not the proper Jewish year, by December 31st, um, then uh, then you'll get your issue of uh, Salvage 11, um, in which, as Richard mentioned, you get an article uh, from me about campism and uh, an essay from Richard and, uh, and lots of uh, other things as well. So uh, please do subscribe. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.